Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. Kevin Hogan here. Let's take a look at our top stories. A U.S. Senator shares his thoughts on Canada's response to protesters and despite the Emergencies Act, demonstrators aren't backing down. Newly passed state election laws may not be enforced for the midterms. That's because lawsuits are challenging them in federal court. The Arizona Senate voted Tuesday to outlaw abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The move comes ahead of a highly anticipated Supreme Court decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Restaurants are likely to take a toll from the suspension of Mexican avocado imports. A restaurant manager in Los Angeles says he's concerned and might have to look for alternative sources. Protesters in Canada's capital aren't backing down despite the Prime Minister invoking emergency powers. One U.S. Senator told Fox what he thinks of Justin Trudeau's response. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. U.S. Senator John Kennedy weighed in Tuesday on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's response to the trucker-led protests, telling Fox News he thinks Trudeau misjudged the situation. I support peaceful protests. I don't support breaking the law. But what I think we're seeing in Canada is the uh, tyranny of the managerial elite over the working class majority. Kennedy said he doesn't think the protests are about vaccines, but about asking Trudeau to follow the science, lift restrictions, and let people get back to normal. Here's interim conservative leader Candace Bergen asking when it'll happen. Can the Prime Minister tell Canadians when he will end the divisive, outdated, and unscientific mandate and restrictions? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Like I said, this is a time for responsible leadership to end these blockades. Trudeau defended his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. It gives authorities broad powers, including cutting off funding to protesters and reinforcing local law enforcement with federal police. The scope of these measures are time-limited and geographically targeted. They are reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address. But the emergency powers aren't a done deal. They still have to go through Parliament. Meanwhile, protesters are still standing their ground outside the Prime Minister's office. One demonstrator from Calgary had this message for Trudeau. Time to change some policies. Let's get on with our lives. If it takes you leaving, take a hike. One immigrant from Iran says he chose Canada for its freedom, but now he's concerned Trudeau is destroying that freedom. I see it with my own eyes how tyranny begins, and it's it's very similar, just like what Ayatollah did in Iran. Trucks have been parked outside Parliament since late January. The head of Ottawa's police service, Peter Slowly, stepped down Tuesday, saying he'd done everything possible to keep the city safe and put an end to what he called the crisis. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Hundreds of protesters continue to occupy lawns in front of New Zealand's Parliament House for a ninth day. They have ignored repeated calls by the police to leave. The protesters claim inspiration from similar anti-vaccine mandate demonstrations like those by Canada truckers. They have blocked several streets in the capital city of Wellington with their trucks, vans and motorcycles. A police official says some progress was made in engaging with protest leaders. About a dozen vehicles left voluntarily after an ultimatum was issued on Tuesday. Police told protesters to move out or risk having vehicles towed and seized. 
The protesters, the protests started as a stand against vaccine mandates, but have been joined by groups calling for an end to COVID-19 restrictions. Some have also used the protest to call attention to other social issues. Authorities say a tanker carrying gasoline lost control, crashed into a vacant building, and burst into flames on Long Island early Wednesday. The crash injured the truck driver and three firefighters who responded. Thick black smoke was seen billowing from the Rockville Center building, which was fully engulfed in flames while firefighters worked to put out the blaze. WNBC-TV reported that Chief Fire Marshal James Avenday said authorities received a call about 1.10 a.m. The 13,000-gallon tanker crashed into a vacant Lazy Boy showroom at North Center Avenue and Sunrise Highway. That's about 30 miles east of New York City. The building later collapsed. Other businesses in the area were without power as firefighters continued to put out hotspots. The truck driver was reportedly taken to a hospital for treatment. Navinday said that three firefighters were hurt, including two who went to a hospital. Details about the extent of their injuries weren't immediately released. Nassau Traffic Management said on Twitter that traffic was closed in both directions. The cause of the crash was under investigation. Lawsuits may prevent state election laws from being enforced in three key states during the midterms. It comes as a Democrat group sues over a GOP redistricting plan in Kansas. The lawsuits targeting the election laws affect three states, Florida, Georgia, and Texas. Lawmakers passed significant election laws in 2021, but they may not take effect if the lawsuits succeed. The Republican-controlled legislature passed the laws. Democrats strongly opposed them. The Florida law adds ID requirements for absentee ballots, requires absentee ballots to be requested for each election, adds rules to prevent ballot harvesting, and allows more partisan observers during vote counting, among other things. The groups filing the lawsuit are the League of Women Voters, Black Voters Matter, and the Alliance for Retired Americans. They argue the Florida law violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Georgia's legislature approved the state's new election law in March, and the governor signed it the same day the House passed it. The law aims to make elections more secure by tightening ID requirements, limiting drop boxes, shortening deadlines for requesting absentee ballots, and bans giving out food and water to voters in line. The plaintiffs in the case against the law include the NAACP, League of Women Voters, Common Cause, Lower Muscogee Creek Tribe, and New Georgia Project. They allege the law is unconstitutional. And in Kansas, Democrats are asking a county to strike down a map that determines districts for representatives. Republicans who control the Kansas legislature approved the map. The complaint was filed four days later on February 14th in Wyandotte County District Court. It's filed on behalf of several Kansas residents and the group of activists Loud 8. The GOP's map divides the state into four congressional districts. Each has about three quarters of a million people. The redistricting process takes place every 10 years based on the 10-year census. It accounts for changes in population and attempts to ensure each person's vote counts equally. A candidate for lieutenant governor of Nevada, Mac Miller, is speaking out. He alleges local radio station KCEP 88.1 FM is censoring him. That's because the station shut down his segment, which he describes as the first conservative black talk show on their station. He starts by telling us why he chose to negotiate a deal with what he calls a liberal radio station. One of the things that we 
always have been saying for years is that the community needs to be able to have you know both sides of the coin. Uh, the community I grew up in was traditionally black. It's just a black community. And literally, I grew up a block away from the Martin Luther King Jr. statue. And there was nothing but desert there when I grew up. Uh, the street was called Highland, but it's now called Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And I thought, you know what? I was going to bring a show to the radio station and really make an impact. I see. And so KCEP provides a mix of news, public affairs, music. And they want to give knowledge to the community so they can be better informed, but they say your show has been taken down because they say you need to get approval to discuss politics. What's your rebuttal to this? Well, it wasn't so much that approval. It was, it was the fact that they waited literally 10 minutes before we were going live on the air. For at least a month and a half, we've been in negotiations. We closed that deal. We signed, we, we signed a deal, actually. We also paid for the show. And the minute I was in pre, in prep, you know, in prep for the show live, they, they, one of the producers heard me say something about Donald Trump and heard me say that I wanted to make sure that the listeners know that President Trump was the first president to fund traditionally black colleges and universities. And that seemed okay until I said, but Biden just took that money away. And when they heard that, they said, hold on one second, you can't go on. And I said, what do you mean I can't go on? He said, well, you can't be partisan. And I thought, wait a minute. I've been listening to this radio station, albeit not agreeing with their political slant that they've always had on their show. For 30 years, they've had multiple Democrat elected officials, not only as guests, but also hosting a show. So, Mac, let's talk about another time that you were in the news. Back in September, you were thrown out of the Clark County Commission chambers. Now, you may have a lawsuit in connection with being thrown through the metal detector, but aside from that, you're suing over slander and libel. Can you tell us more about this? Wow, yes, Kevin, you know, so as horrific as that situation was, uh, our county commission was, uh, was uh, they had a proclamation to declare misinformation about COVID, uh, basically illegal. A, a, a day later, Clark County Commissioner Tick Segerblum said that I punched someone before it started, uh, making it seem as though I punched someone and that's why I was, I was thrown out. That wasn't the case. He said, I punched someone. He said he had video of it. He then further said that if they did something wrong, they would correct it and that they would apologize. Well, three months went by, Kevin. There came no apology. One month after it, there was an investigation by the county that found that I had done absolutely nothing wrong, so much so that they didn't even want to write a report about it. NTD reached out to KCEP and Tick Segerblum, but we haven't heard back yet. Another member of Congress is calling it quits. Tuesday, Congresswoman Kathleen Rice announced she will not seek re-election this fall. The New York Democrat noted her 30 years in public service in her announcement. She says elected officials must know when it is time to allow others to serve. Rice did not explain her reason for retiring in the statement. Republicans are expected to make wide inroads into the House in 2022. However, Rice hails from a strongly blue district where Democrats have won the last several elections by 20-point margins or more. Rice is one of 30 House Democrats who have decided to step away from Congress in 2022. Two former Hawaii lawmakers pleaded guilty to felony charges over a bribery scheme. One was a state senator and the other a state representative. Both were members of the Democratic Party. They were charged with one count each of honest services wire fraud. 
Prosecutors claim both Jamie English and Ty Cullen accepted multiple bribes. This in return for performing and agreeing to perform official legislative acts over several years on behalf of a Hawaii business person. Prosecutors say the bribes included cash and hotel rooms, among other things. Prosecutors accuse English and Cullen of failing to report anything given to them in their mandatory gift disclosure reports. Hawaii News Now reports that as part of a plea deal, English agreed to forfeit more than $15,000 and Cullen will forfeit $23,000. Both were released on bond, but they had to surrender their passports and other travel documents. The Epic Times could not reach lawyers for English and Cullen for comment. The head of the Senate Banking Committee delays a vote on President Biden's nominees to the Federal Reserve. Republican senators had objections to the nominee for Wall Street regulator. No Republicans showed up when the 24-member panel gathered for a vote. All Democrat members were present. Senator Pat Toomey called on fellow Republicans to skip the vote. He says there are unanswered questions about Sarah Bloom Raskin's past role on the board of a financial tech company. The Democrats on the panel signaled unanimous support for the Fed nominees. However, Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren still opposes renominating Jerome Powell for another four-year term as chair. Without the Republican senators, the panel does not have enough members to hold a vote. The panel head says he will try to reschedule a vote as soon as possible. A watchdog group is calling for an investigation into Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. The group says she might have violated federal law by improperly reporting stock transactions. The Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust says she potentially violated conflict of interest and transparency laws related to as much as $250,000 in stock transactions. The complaint states that stock transactions made between the end of April and the end of October were not reported on time. It states the transactions include stocks of biopharmaceutical firm Gilead Sciences, real estate company Redfin, and Uber. Gilead makes a COVID-19 treatment and doses contra- does contract with the government. Granholm was criticized last year for not divesting from an electric vehicle company after saying she would. And she was also criticized for giving President Biden a virtual visit to that same company. On Monday, investigators got a breakthrough in a missing child case that's been open for two years when they found the girl hidden under a staircase. Paisley Schultes was reported missing in 2019 when she was just four years old. Police executing a search warrant found her Monday in a secret room that was hidden beneath a staircase. They had to remove planks to get access. The dark and wet enclosure is in a space that led to the home's basement. Police say the child's biological mother, Kimberly Cooper, was found in the same space. The New York home is about 150 miles away from where Schultes was last seen. Police had searched it before, but were never given full access. Cooper, the child's biological father and grandfather, are now facing charges. Schultes has been returned to her legal guardian and reunited with her older sister. Republicans in control of the Arizona Senate voted Tuesday to outlaw abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The move comes ahead of a highly anticipated Supreme Court decision that could bring sweeping changes to abortion availability in the United States. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The vote came over objections from Democrats who hold the minority. They called the measure unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade. 
and say any ban would disproportionately impact lower-income and minority women. Senator Nancy Barto is the Republican sponsor of the bill. The Supreme Court is becoming aware uh, in law of these facts, and viability is no longer going to be the standard going forward, a lot of us believe. And so the Dobbs decision before the Mississippi bill, before the, the, the Supreme Court right now, is probably going to uh, overturn uh, Roe, we're hoping. Arizona already has some of the nation's strictest abortion laws, including one that would automatically outlaw the practice if the high court fully overturns Roe. Abortion is currently legal until the point a fetus can survive outside the womb, usually around 24 weeks. Democratic Senator Martin Quesada believes the new law is unconstitutional. You know, despite the answer that we received, the law as it stands right now, it is unconstitutional. This is a blatantly unconstitutional proposal that we are debating right now. Uh, and there are decades of judicial precedent uh, that, that, uh, that uphold uh, that, that, con that unconstitutionality. Um, so I, I rise in op opposition. The bill now moves to the Republican-controlled state house. If passed there, it goes to Governor Doug Ducey's desk. The Republican opposes abortion. He's signed every related bill that has reached his desk in the past seven sessions. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The Agricultural Department's decision to halt imports of Mexican avocados is giving restaurants pressure. California restaurant owners voice concerns, and they're expecting prices to rise. Here are the details. The Department of Agriculture suspended avocado imports from Mexico last Friday. They say their inspectors were threatened verbally in Mexico's biggest avocado producing state, and the agency needs to ensure their safety. Piero Sanchez, the general manager of a restaurant in LA, calls the news super concerning. The fact of the matter that the restaurant industry, you know, we've been walloped with prices on everything. So the fact of the matter that there's now another thing that's going to affect us is just, it's just nonstop. The restaurant industry has already had to deal with pandemic restrictions and supply chain issues over the past two years. Sanchez says his restaurant has enough avocados for two or three days, but after that, they will have to look for alternate sources. We see the day-to-day -day what we're spending, um, but if we do see that this runs on for about another month or two, uh, we, we will definitely have that serious conversation to figure out if we're going to retain guacamole for a little bit or, or, or leave the avocados on, on our burritos and our tacos. All avocado crops bound for the U.S. must be inspected for safety. The Department of Agriculture says the suspension will remain in place for as long as necessary to ensure the appropriate actions are taken. We'll find viable solutions if that is purchasing through California avocados. Uh, you know, we'll find a way to get to get that guacamole on that plate. I can guarantee you that. Details of the incident in Mexico were not immediately clear. Mexico's top avocado producing state has long had security issues linked to problems with drug gangs. A judge on Tuesday blocked Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for certain first responders. Massachusetts Appeals Court Judge Sabita Singh ruled that the vaccine requirement for members of three municipal labor unions cannot be enforced until their ongoing legal challenge is resolved. While the mandate will not be enforced, unvaccinated workers must comply with an existing agreement to get tested for COVID-19 weekly. The decision stems from a lawsuit against the mayor's vaccine mandate. 
Wu set a January 15th deadline for all municipal workers to be fully vaccinated as a condition of an employment. The unions argued that Wu lacked the authority to overrule the existing vax or test policy that they had agreed with the city earlier. In a statement, Wu's office said that city officials are disappointed by the decision and are reviewing it carefully. Los Angeles law enforcement says authorities rescued more than 80 human trafficking and sexual exploitation victims, including children, during a week-long operation. It also netted hundreds of arrests. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department says 74 adults and 8 children were rescued and 34 suspected traffickers were arrested. The Los Angeles Police Department said it made 194 arrests and rescued four people. About 200 sex buyers were also taken into custody. Sheriff Alex Villanueva also expressed his concern after completing the successful operation. But one of the things that is disturbing is a lack of prosecution for a lot of the crimes involving human trafficking or misdemeanor crimes. And right now the district attorney in L.A. is not prosecuting hardly any misdemeanors. The annual Operation Reclaim and Rebuild was held last week and coincided with the run-up to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. That's amid myths surrounding an alleged link between human trafficking and major sporting events. But academic studies and news reports have repeatedly shown that trafficking does not increase as the Super Bowl and other championships approach. The Department of Justice says five members of a family-run sex trafficking operation smuggled young Mexican women and girls to New York City and forced them into prostitution. Several girls were 14 years old. Last week, all five received prison sentences of 20 to 39 years for sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, sex trafficking of minors, interstate prostitution, alien smuggling, and money laundering conspiracy. A sixth co-defendant is awaiting sentencing. A jury in U.S. federal court on Tuesday ruled against Sarah Palin in her libel lawsuit against the New York Times. This was about a 2017 editorial that incorrectly linked her to a mass shooting. Palin, the former Alaska governor and 2008 Republican U.S. vice presidential candidate, is expected to appeal. Ahead of the jury's decision, the presiding judge had already said he would dismiss the case regardless of the verdict. He said that Palin had not met the very high standard of proving actual malice, which would mean that the Times knowingly published false information or had a reckless disregard for the truth. Her case is considered a major test of libel protections for American media under the First Amendment and under a 1964 U.S. Supreme Court decision, New York Times v. Sullivan. That decision established the actual malice standard for public figures like Palin to prove defamation. Palin's lawyer, Kenneth Turkle, says they are disappointed in the verdict. We obviously have our own view of the evidence and the law and the facts that came out during this trial. And as you all have done all week and last week, you gleaned from it what you gleaned. We're going to evaluate all our options uh, for appeal, all of our options for any further motion practice uh, in court at the trial level uh, and take it from there. A spokeswoman for The Times said the newspaper welcomed the verdict which recognized the importance of not punishing news media for unintended mistakes that are quickly corrected. For one thief in Oklahoma, getting in wasn't the problem, but getting out, now that was a whole other issue. 
Oklahoma City Police are looking for this man who they say robbed a convenience store in the early hours of February 7th. Security video caught everything, including him struggling to open a drive through window to escape. He tried a bunch of times and looks completely stumped. Eventually, an apparent accomplice runs over and helps. She takes the stolen items and he jumps out of the window. Oklahoma City Police are asking anyone with information about the case to call Crime Stoppers. Boeing can no longer self-inspect its new 787 Dreamliners. The Federal Aviation Administration has revoked the company's ability to deem the model safe to fly. Inspections of 787s that roll off the assembly line are typically done by a designated FAA representative employed by Boeing. But the FAA said in a statement they will now be done by the FAA itself until Boeing's quality control and manufacturing processes consistently produce 787s that meet FAA design standards. Tuesday's FAA announcement stems from manufacturing defects found in the production of the plane, Boeing's wide-body airliner, which has been in service since 2011. Inspection methods have come under scrutiny from Congress and investigators in the wake of two fatal Boeing 737 MAX crashes. A female humpback whale traveling with a male and calf has been freed. It was found entangled in a line with a large bundle of marine debris attached. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says the whale was freed while swimming in the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary off Maui. More than 500 feet of line was wrapped tightly around the humpback's head. The agency said tight wraps on the head are dangerous to the trained response teams that approach the whales to cut the animals free. The line was tangled with various kinds of marine debris that accumulates in the waters around Hawaii. Coming up, Ukraine's top tank factory is operating at full capacity amid concerns of possible Russian invasion. Ukraine's state defense conglomerate is prepared for a potential conflict. And the head of the U.S. anti-doping agency says figure skater Kamila Valieva's alleged doping needs more scrutiny. He's also criticizing the International Olympic Committee and the World Anti-Doping Agency over the incident. All that and more after the short break. Ukrainians raised national flags and played the country's anthem today to show unity against fear of a Russian invasion that Western powers have said could be imminent. NTD's Anna Varava has more from Kiev. Ukraine's president called 16th of February a day of a unity. He called Ukrainians to return to the country to stay side by side with Ukrainian army, people and diplomacy. Numerous Western media outlets suggested that February 16th could be the date of a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. In response, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, suggested that on February 16th, the people of Ukraine could celebrate a new national holiday, the Day of Unity. A huge 200-meter-long Ukrainian flag was unfurled at the Olympijsky National Sports Complex in Kiev. About 1,000 participants walked in a circle along the field, holding the yellow-blue flag and singing Ukraine's national anthem. Everything about our symbols always evokes in me feelings of respect, respect and pleasant emotions. 
We saw what sincere smiles people have, despite all the circumstances in the country. Today we saw that Ukrainians are one nation, one people, and we know how to unite. We want to show the world our unity, that we are not afraid of anything. We love our country and we are united in everything we do. We love our country so much and will always protect it. I want to live here peacefully, happily, for a very long time. President Zelensky called on Ukrainians to take a photo or video with the flag of Ukraine on the Day of Unity and to share it on social media. In the meantime, the Russian Federation is insisting that NATO announce its refusal to admit Ukraine to the alliance. This was stated by Konstantin Gavrilov, who was the head of the Russian delegation to the negotiations on military security and arms control in Vienna. On February 16th, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said that NATO's doors remain open to Ukraine. According to him, the alliance will not compromise on key principles. He says that Russia does not decide who will or will not be a member of NATO. Ukraine's biggest tank factory is opening its gates to the media and showcasing its products. The factory is operating at full capacity right now amid fears of a potential Russian invasion. Here are the details. Kharkiv Tank Factory is Ukraine's biggest tank production facility. It is best known for making Soviet models, such as the T-34 of World War II, the Cold War T-64 and T-80, and their modern Ukrainian successor. Officials say work continues, as usual, despite fears of a possible Russian invasion. We fulfill the tasks set for us by the country's leadership. Though during the past years and months, we develop scenarios for any situation which may occur under the circumstance of war, which is going on for eight years in the country. He adds that he recently visited the Joint Forces Operation Area and received feedback from the service members. He says engineers at the factory will take them into account. Tank men like them, dynamics are totally different. The vehicle drives faster, starts faster, 30% increase of engine capacity adds a lot. A war veteran at the tank factory says Ukraine's state defense conglomerate is preparing for war. Every enterprise from Ukrom concern and Ukrom defense history has so-called mobilization plans, which gives clear instruction on what to do if something happens. The veteran says he doesn't believe an invasion will happen the next day, but they still have to consider the possibility. The factory is fully loaded. It works at its full capacity. All employees work and they produce and upgrade tanks as fast as prescribed by the procedure. Russia's defense ministry said on Tuesday that some troops in Russia's military districts adjacent to Ukraine are returning to their bases after completing drills. Team USA takes first and second place at the men's free ski slope style event. Americans Alexander Hall and Nicholas Gupper were joined on the podium by Sweden's Jasper Shader in third place. Alex Hall's final trick was called the pretzel. He says his stomach knotted up just thinking about whether to attempt it. He stopped his rotation midair and turned in the other direction before softly landing. Hall says he wasn't sure he could land it, but went for it and is happy it worked out. Hall's opening performance drew a score of 90.01. No one could match it after three runs. Teammate Nick Gupper turned in creative run on his second pass to the even to earn silver. The free ski slope style event debuted at the 2014 Olympics. Americans have captured six of the nine medals issued since its start. 
Gupper himself has captured three of them. The head of the United States Anti-Doping Agency said Olympian Camilla Valieva's alleged doping needs a lot more investigation and scrutiny. That's after the Russian figure skater blamed her failed test on medication her grandfather was taking. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The IOC's Dennis Oswald confirmed on Tuesday that Valieva had blamed contamination with her grandfather's trimetazidine pills. The Court of Arbitration for Sport on Monday cleared Valieva to compete in the women's singles event this week. After a panel of three judges agreed with the Russian anti-doping agency decision to lift a ban on her. This situation is super unfortunate and it's also unprecedented that someone with a failed doping test is allowed to compete in the games. It's a complete slap in the face to every single athlete who comes here and competes clean. Head of the U.S. anti-doping agency, Travis Tigart, said he found it difficult to believe that contamination had played a part. But e even if he did have a legitimate need, and, and let's hope that he did, if, if he had this drug, that doesn't mean it's going to jump from a closed container in a medicine cabinet into someone's urine at a level of 2.1 nanograms. So it raises serious questions and alarm bells uh, to the legitimacy of the story. And it Tigart also welcomed the comments of the World Anti-Doping Agency President Witold Banka that those who dope children should face jail, but questioned why the IOC and WADA had lobbied against the passing of the Runchenkov Act. It goes back to, you know, talk is cheap, and we've, we've heard them say various things, and, and now it's, I guess, uh, you know, pounding your chest and looking tough on, you know, those who dope athletes. You know, they just a, a year or so ago were spending, you know, a significant amount of money along with the IOC to lobby, hire, literally hired lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to lobby against the Rochinkoff Act. The act gives U.S. authorities the ability to prosecute and jail those involved in doping overseas if their actions have affected American athletes. At the time it was passed, WADA said unintended consequences would undermine the fight against doping worldwide. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, there will be a new, easier way to get Girl Scout cookies Girl Scouts of Northern California is partnering with DoorDash to make getting the sweet, in-demand treats easier. Valencia, Spain reclaims its famous dish. Locals are trying to clear up misconceptions about what ingredients true paella contains. Find out more here on NTD News. An iconic sports car went back to the future, then was discontinued. Now it is ready to rev up some new business. The DeLorean Motor Company announced its official return on social media this week with a new teaser for its DeLorean Reimagined. The company says the new electric vehicle is set to premiere this year. In the teaser, the video posted, the company posted, it appears the new DeLorean will keep its signature gullwing doors. The DeLorean was famously used in the Back to the Future film trilogy but was a short-lived car. Production only lasted between 1981 and 1983. That means it was no longer being made when the first Back to the Future movie hit theaters in 1985. Designer duo Mark Badgley and James Mishka turned back to their 1980s student days for their fall 2022 collection at New York Fashion Week. They presented an array of elegant dresses adorned with large bows or detailed shoulders. 
In the latest creations, models wore gowns with drooping sleeves, suits sparkled with sequins, the designers revisited their assignments undertaken as students. That includes stints at the Brooklyn Museum, Parsons School of Design, the Met, as well as dressing fashion shows for New York designers. Dresses had plenty of bows, decorating fronts, sitting on sleeves, or adorning waistlines. One jumpsuit was tied at the neck. Some frocks came ruffled on the front, others were one-shouldered in chiffon or decorated with flowers. The designers used shades of tobacco, blush, scarlet, olive, midnight blue, and black. Fabrics mixed luxury with comfort. Like other labels, Badgley Mishka has enjoyed the current wave of soaring demand for high-end goods as customers splash out following lockdowns. It's Girl Scout cookie season again, and this year, Girl Scouts of Northern California is partnering with DoorDash to provide contactless delivery service. NTD's Eileen Ng was at their San Jose location on the first day. The Girl Scouts of America are partnering with DoorDash to provide delivery services in participating cities. They can also uh, do something that's called a double dash, where if they're ordering from a restaurant in the area, they may want to add cookies to their order, and the, and the dasher, the driver, will actually uh, pick up their food and their cookies as well. In this new model, a Girl Scout will prepare a customer order at a booth and give it to a dasher to pick up. McCann says this teaches the Girl Scouts how to run their own business and develop other skills. Like money management, I mean, you really need that. We also learn like how to sell something and like how to talk to people. People really like Girl Scout cookies and it's kind of cool um, to see how people enjoy the, the things that we do. It's a lot of giving back to the community, which is pretty, really cool. Arrow prefers selling the cookies in booths because she can talk and interact with people more. During the pandemic lockdowns, the cookies were sold online. The girls can use the proceeds for community service work and field trips. All cookies are $6 a box. The newest flavor is called Adventurefuls. It's a brownie-inspired cookie with caramel-flavored cream and a hint of sea salt. Girl Scouts work with two bakeries to come up with new flavors. So they are experts in terms of developing flavors, looking at that flavor profile, what's really exciting to consumers. And then they think about our mission at Girl Scouts and they try to make sure that we have something that really blends. So the Adventureful is an obvious choice because Girl Scouts is all about offering new adventures to girls. In a statement, DoorDash's VP of Strategic Partnerships and Business Development said, Through this collaboration, we aim to provide access and opportunity for Girl Scouts while providing their neighborhoods with safe, efficient, and enjoyable ways to support their local troops. People can find Girl Scouts selling the cookies at in-person booths by putting their zip code in at ilovecookies.org. The partnership applies across the nation, and the cookie season runs until March 27th. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. A cute sloth was saved from electrocution and certain death after climbing up an electrical pole in Colombia's Antioquia province. After receiving calls from worried residents in the rural town of Taraza, workers from Colombian Public Services Company, EPM, went to the rescue. 38-year-old EPM employee Victor Lopez was working nearby. With safety measures in place, he climbed up on the post and reached out to the sloth, who at first was fearful and kept moving further away from him. The sloth finally came to its senses when Lopez spoke to it in a soothing voice. 
and grabbed onto him and a broom to let and grabbed onto a broom held out by Lopez. In a dramatic 20-minute operation, the fortunate sloth was carefully brought down from the electrical cables and released back into the wild. The sloth suffered no injuries. People all over the world enjoy paella, but few know that authentic versions of the rice dish don't contain any seafood. Just what are they made of? Let's take a look at an original recipe. Non-Spaniards are often delighted to find what they know as paella cooking up in Barcelona's restaurants, but only the locals in Catalonia know that these dishes don't follow the dish's true recipe. Instead, they call the variations rice on the side, noting that original paella doesn't contain any seafood or chorizo, a type of pork sausage. Sometimes when I eat out, I fancy eating a proper paella, like the one I eat at home with my family or friends on Sundays. But then you go out to a restaurant and they cook it with shrimp, mussels, or who knows what else. This is not real Valencian paella. Authorities in Valencia honored authentic paella last October, awarding it an official seal of cultural status. Thanks to that decree, Catalans can officially reclaim the traditional recipe. But the decision doesn't mean restaurants will have to take the word paella off their menus. I'm not really interested in trying to forbid a good-natured chef in Madrid, New York City or Miami from using the name paella for their recipes, even if they don't follow our local traditional recipe. What is important to me is to divulge the real recipe so the world can learn from what paella means to the people of Valencia. In Barcelona, most of the restaurants specializing in traditional Valencian paella are off the tourist trail. In one of them, the chef lightly fries chopped chicken and rabbit in extra virgin olive oil in a large preheated pan to make the dish. Then, hand-chopped green and white beans are added to the mix. A touch of peeled tomatoes goes in, and the food is left to cook on a medium heat. The next ingredients soon go into the pot, saffron and sweet paprika, then water. And once the water starts boiling, it's time for the most important element. Rice must be added in a crosswise manner so the grains get evenly dispersed. So far, customers have welcomed the dish's new protective label. Me parece muy bien. I think this is good news, because otherwise they would even put chorizo in it. And that is not paella. You can have rice mixed with other ingredients, or you can have paella. The earliest recorded recipe dates back to the mid-18th century, yet the name paella did not appear until the beginning of the last century. When the Moors invaded Spain in the 8th century AD, they began growing rice in the region. Back then, paella was more like a stew of rice and meat or fish. It's the largest and most valuable blue diamond to ever come to auction, and it's a recent discovery. The De Beers Cullinan Blue Diamond was mined in 2021 at South Africa's Cullinan Mine. It's one of the few sources in the world for extremely rare blue diamonds. Sotheby's senior vice president said the jewel is remarkable on many levels. It's rare because of the, the size. It's over 15 carats. It's a vivid blue. It's internally flawless. And really, one of the most rare aspects of it is the cut. It's a step cut, which really requires an exceptionally even saturation of color to achieve that beautiful step cut, rather than a brilliant cut. The Gemological Institute of America graded the diamond a fancy vivid blue. That's the highest possible color grading, according to Sotheby's. It's awarding to no more than 1% of blue diamonds submitted to the Institute. The diamond will be offered in a single lot auction at Sotheby's Hong Kong this April. It is estimated to sell for more than $48 million. Blue diamonds at auction have had an admirable track record, 
In 2014, the Melon Blue Diamond, renamed the Zoe Diamond at Sotheby's New York, sold for $32.6 million. A year later, Sotheby's Geneva sold the Blue Moon of Josephine, a 12.03 carat cushion-shaped, internally flawless, fancy, vivid blue diamond for $48.5 million. It still holds the price per carat auction record for any diamond or gemstone. Hundreds of people gathered in Taiwan's New Taipei City yesterday to celebrate the annual Lantern Festival. The city has a tradition of launching paper lanterns into the sky for this festival. The Lantern Festival marks the end of the celebration of Chinese New Year, which lasts 15 days, and the festival is celebrated on the night of the first full moon of the Lunar New Year. Participants released dozens of paper lanterns into the night sky Tuesday night. People usually write their wishes on the lanterns. Visitors had to follow pandemic restrictions by wearing face masks, but most of them didn't seem to worry about the gathering. A student from Paraguay says it's her first time at the festival and said it was an exciting experience. Taking a walk after dinner has an extra health benefit during the long nights of winter. It can keep you awake long enough for a healthy sleep. Here's more from Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. It can be hard to stay awake this time of year. Every day the sun sets a little earlier, and when it's dark around 5 p.m., it can make 6.30 feel like midnight. Your body is naturally equipped to shut down when it gets dark. It starts producing melatonin so you get sleepy and crave bed. But going to bed too early can have health implications. A study found that there might be a sweet spot for falling asleep. Falling asleep outside it, either before or after, may substantially boost the risk for heart disease. The research published in the European Heart Journal, Digital Health, indicated that going to bed between 10 and 11 p.m. coincides with the lowest risk for heart health. The risk went up by 12% for those with bedtimes between 11 and 12 p.m. and more than doubled to 25% for those going down at midnight or later. It isn't just the night owls who experience higher risk either. Researchers also found that people who fell asleep earlier than 10 p.m. had a 24% higher risk than those going to bed in the sweet spot. But staying up till 10 p.m. can be tough this time of year. One way to help yourself get a little bit of evening energy is to take a walk after dinner. Going for a walk after dinner is a relaxing way to give your body a boost and signal that it's required for a few more hours every day. It's likely to provide enough energy to keep you awake until bedtime and encourage quality sleep. 15 to 30 minutes at a leisurely to moderate pace is all you need. The benefits will go beyond bedding fatigue and encouraging better sleep. Going for a walk after dinner is also associated with improved nutrient absorption, while it also offers a set plan for daily activity. If you need help making it to 10pm before bed or are sick of feeling so burned out in the final few hours of the day, try a walk after dinner. You'll likely be impressed by the effect. Thanks for watching. At NTD, we're honored to be your source for the news. Catch us again tonight at 6.30 Eastern. In New York City, I'm Kevin Hogan.